Great. Hey, it's great to be back with you. I think this is my fourth time here, so great to see you guys again. And for those of you who don't know me, I thought maybe I'd just introduce myself at the start, if it's okay with you. I thought maybe I'd just show you a few photos from my life. Would that be okay? This is just a bit of fun. Yeah? Is that right? Okay. So, first photograph then, ladies and gentlemen, me as a baby. Now, you can see here that I was actually born with a receding hairline. (laughs) Uh, You can also see, if you look really carefully, that I was also born with a squint, which means that wherever you are seated in this room, at least one of my eyes is looking at you. Next photograph, me, age seven. Thank you for that, R. Um, As you can see, ladies and gentlemen, I've really got a number of problems here. In fact, we could spend the whole morning going through my problems one by one. Just to choose one of my many problems, you can see what's happened here is that my mum has got out the old kitchen scissors. (laughs) And she's tried to cut my fringe straight, but she's gone ever so slightly uphill. Can you see that? Next photograph, me in a band. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, when I was a student, I too was in a band. And uh, you can see... On one side of me, can you see my friend Jim? His lips are pouting. You see that? That's because Jim has been in a band before. Roddy and me, however, we haven't been in a band before, so we're just trying to look cool, you know, like you do. Uh, Next photograph, me on my stag day. Uh, Just to explain, uh, if you're not from this country, uh, here in Britain, uh, if you are a man and you want to get married, you first have to dress up as an ostrich jockey. Now I'm married to my wonderful wife, Julia, and we have these uh, four lovely daughters. So I am now uh, 50 years into my journey through life. Thank you for that, uh, that affirmation from a similarly aged man to my left. Um, probably all of us would agree that during the course of a typical 70, 80, 90 year life, there usually comes a point, a moment. Now, granted, this moment may only last for five minutes, but at least for those five minutes of our 80 or 90 year life, for those five minutes, you and I ask this question, am I alive for a reason? I mean, I can see, talk, think, feel, I can have fun, But is there any purpose to life? For at least those five minutes, we ask, why am I here? I mean, for that matter, why is anything here? How come there is something rather than nothing? Why did anything begin to exist? How come there is a universe with me living in it? How come there's a planet Earth with me living on it? You know, I just showed you a few photos from my life. You could get your phone right now. You could come up here. You could show me some photos from your life. Once we put those photos together, does it mean anything? I mean, do our lives amount to anything in the greater scheme of things? Or are we really just sort of meaningless bags of chemicals? Is life ultimately pointless? And during those five minutes, when we're thinking about this huge question, along comes a 33-year-old man. Now, he is by far the most famous man who's ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. And he looks you and me straight in the eye this morning and says, you're not an accident. You're supposed to be here. You're worth something. 
Jesus of Nazareth says there really is a loving God, a loving God who always planned that one day you would exist. And now this loving God has deliberately brought you into existence on purpose in the hope of having a wonderful relationship with you. Jesus says this relationship is so good, it's not only good for this life, but it goes on into the next life, into a place where you'll never be bored. A place where every day will be better than the one before. This is a place where you'll be filled and thrilled to the max. Jesus says you're that loved by God. Now that's quite a claim. How do people respond to this claim? For example, what happened to me? Well, my story is that I didn't go to church. In fact, I didn't even know anyone at my age who went to church. But then I was invited along, somewhat out of the blue, to a church that's actually very much like this church. And as you can imagine, I had lots of questions. One of my questions was, hasn't science buried God? And this morning, I'd like to just explore this question in terms of the journey that I went on and look at some of the questions that I asked along the way. Uh, This book is the autobiography of a famous geneticist called Francis Collins. It's the story of how he converted about halfway through his academic career from atheism to Christianity. After Collins became a Christian, he was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And in April 2003, Francis Collins announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome. This is one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. Has science buried God? Well, clearly not in the opinion of the many leading scientists like Francis Collins who believe in God. They see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. Or how about my friend Keith Fox? Keith is professor of biochemistry at Southampton University. Keith is one of the UK's leading biologists. But Keith's part of a church like this church. I mean, I've preached at Keith's church. At his church, Keith Fox leads a group called Reasonable Faith. Or how about Christine Dunn? Chris is a convert from atheism to Christianity. She's professor of physics at Durham University. She's married to one of the elders of Emmanuel Church Durham, which is a church that's linked to this church. Chris is a friend of mine. What she does is she leads the Alpha course at her church. Now, the point is there's a long list of people like this. These are outstanding scientists who are also keen Christians. These people would all say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites is a category mistake. Now, what do they mean when they say it's a category mistake? Well, let's imagine for a moment that I decide to make a cup of tea. Now, let's imagine that while the kettle is boiling, let's imagine that scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby the heat is turned into boiling water. So we now know how the water boils. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say, because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It's a mistake because you could still quite accurately say, the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, that would be a category mistake. So we don't need an adversarial either-or 
explanation. And it seems that actually most people in Britain agree with this. A European Commission poll found that 78% of people in the UK believe in God and or the supernatural. These are the very same British adults who have more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in this modern technological age, actually most people in Britain don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either-or. Most people in Britain actually do see science and God as a both-and. And so having heard this kind of reply, I then said, okay, okay, maybe you're right, science hasn't buried God, but come on, hey, look, as we discover more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely, yes? Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Okay, firstly then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe had always been there. Just accept it, they said. It's always been there. They used to argue in that way because at that time, the universe was thought to be locked in a static or so-called steady state. Then, an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not actually locked in a static, steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and they're also moving away from each other. And to uh, kind of visualize what Hubble saw, the most helpful thing to do is, just for a moment, have a look at this balloon. Now just imagine with me, if you'd like to, for a moment, that these stars on my youngest daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Hubble saw from California was, wherever we look in the universe, the galaxies are moving away from each other, and they're moving away from us. So if all the galaxies are moving away from each other, the conclusion is obvious. The universe is actually expanding. So if the universe is expanding, scientists concluded in the past, the universe must have been much smaller than it is today. They actually concluded that at one time, even before this, the universe must have had a beginning. And then, in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that had actually been left behind by this beginning moment. The radiation is like a signature left behind by the beginning moment. So today there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe did have a beginning. Now this was a huge blow to atheists because they could no longer argue that the universe had always been there. This is a good example of how a scientific discovery has actually made it easier to believe in God. Because this beginning moment does look like Genesis 1 verse 3, where God says, let there be light. And there was light. Let me put the same thing to you a different way. Imagine if I said to you that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. But then, a fraction of a second later, there was a huge 
each purple carrot the size of Bristol. I put it to you that the sudden appearance of the huge carrot would demand some sort of explanation. You see, it's not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe. No. Space and time themselves began to exist at this beginning moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly out of nothing. And so this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, this seems sensible, at least we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. Well, as we've just seen, actually this is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. This is the standard model the conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Something or someone that exists outside of time and space caused the space-time universe to come into being. Let me uh, finish this point, if I may, just by telling you a funny story. Uh, This is a, a funny story told to us by a friend of ours called Angela. And this lady, Angela, she lives in a village Uh, in Surrey, where my wife's parents live. Angela is waiting at the bus stop, and in this village, there is only one bus a day. So a lot hinges in village life on the bus turning up. She's She's waiting for the daily bus to go to somewhere exciting like Croydon or somewhere. Okay, So she's waiting at the daily bus. But it's a snowy day, remember? There's ice on the road. The bus doesn't come at the advertised time. There's a couple of other women at the bus stop. They were also waiting for the bus. And just think, oh, it must be cancelled. You know, there's ice on the road. She's about to go off and go home. When at that moment, a car pulls up. The car stops at the bus stop. There's a woman driving this car. And she winds down her window. And she calls out, do you want a lift? Angela thinks, well, yeah, I really do want to live. It's jolly cold, and yeah, absolutely. So she gets into the car. In fact, the other two women at the bus stop, they get into the car as well, yeah? So picture the scene. These four women are now driving along in the car together. There's a woman driving this car. Then there are these three ladies on the back seat. There's Angela in the middle of the back seat. There's a lady that Angela doesn't know on her right-hand side. There's another lady that Angela doesn't know on her left-hand side. But Angela says the funny thing was, there's no conversation. No one said anything. They drive along for five minutes. Still, no conversation. Five minutes later, these four have now been going along in the car for ten minutes. Still, no one has spoken a word. Total silence. Then the the, the lady on Angela's right-hand side, she begins talking to the driver. It's obvious these two women, they already know each other. Then the lady on Angela's left-hand side, She joins in the conversation. It's obvious she also knows the driver and she knows the lady on Angela's right. And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela that what must have happened here was that this woman was driving her car along on a snowy day and as she passed the bus stop, she stopped because she saw two of her friends. So she stops, she winds down her window. She calls out to her two friends, Do you want a lift? And as her two friends got into the back of her car, this random 
other person got into the car as well. But you see, because they were British, <laughs> and because they hadn't been introduced, they all sat there in silence thinking, oh, it's very awkward, we haven't been introduced, or what should we say? Oh, I don't know, it's a strange person, a random person in the car. <laughs> and so they drove along in total silence. So that was a socially awkward moment for Surrey folk. But at no point did any of those women in the car think that Angela had come into existence for absolutely no reason at all. None of them thought that Angela had just happened. Why? Because everyone in the world bases their life on the law of cause and effect. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that's capable of bringing space, time, matter, and energy into existence, you could call that first cause God. So I looked at the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now we know that if we live just 5% closer to the sun, we'd fry. We know that if we live 5% further away, we'd freeze. There wouldn't be any life on Earth. We know that our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone of our Milky Way. In between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms, maybe you can see where we live, where those yellow letters are. Turns out that's a rare, safe place in the Milky Way. But the degree of fine-tuning that we are talking about when we are looking at the origin of the universe is far more impressive than any of that. No, way back at the beginning of the universe, there is an explosion which causes matter to explode outwards, but it flies outwards at a perfectly controlled speed. You see, too fast an expansion, and nothing would ever settle down. There wouldn't ever be a universe. But, alternatively, too slow an expansion, and oh, the universe never gets going in the first place. So, the speed of the expansion turns out to be critical. If it slowed down too much, the universe would collapse back on itself. Folks, if the rate of expansion, one second after the beginning moment, had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of the expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant. And that is the energy density of empty space. Therefore, the cosmological constant cannot be just any old number. No. In order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And it's not just the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom on the screen. Turns out there are actually 20 of these numbers, 20 values, 20 forces, all of which have to be just so. Otherwise, no humans could ever have existed. Even the tiniest variation here or there makes all the difference. Maybe I can just give you an amusing illustration of this concept. Now, for some of you here, what I'm about to say will quite honestly be difficult for you to imagine. But I would like you to know that when I was growing up here in this country, 
Every four years, when the Football World Cup came around, I'd like you to know that everyone in England genuinely thought that England would win the World Cup. Even though we all knew in our hearts, we, wouldn't, we all knew deep down that we would be knocked out on penalties. However, during the 1990 World Cup, oh, what a wonderful competition that was, Italia 90, when we were all packed into the college bar and the game's there on the big screen, there's people all around you and it's the quarterfinal, England versus Belgium. The score is nil-nil going into the final minute of the game and I can tell you, as David Platt of England swiveled to volley the ball into the net in the final minute for the winning goal to send us into the World Cup semi-final, at that moment, as the ball crossed the line, as the ball hit the back of the net, at that moment, I kissed people <laughs> who I'd never met. But if you were to go home this afternoon and watch that goal again on YouTube, you would see that if the Belgian goalkeeper had stood just a few inches to his right, the ball would never have gone in the net. He would have saved the shot, England would have lost, and I wouldn't have kissed anyone. <laughs> Folks, that is the difference between winning and losing a football match. But what we are talking about is the difference between our universe existing and you and I existing and nothing existing, coming down to a far tinier variable than those few centimeters. Roger Penrose, who helped develop our current understanding of black holes, he worked out the chances. He computed the odds of entropy. Entropy is the amount of order that exists at the start of the universe that subsequently decays. So we have to have the right amount of entropy at the start in order for us to be here later on. The chance of us having the right level of entropy, he, here's the chance. One chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Folks, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. But entropy is just one of the 20 factors. All 20 have to be just as they are in order for us to be here. So question, why is our universe so unlikely? Answer, because of the number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence. It turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just, bing, exist, but not just exist. They have to be finely tuned to each other. The same is true of matter and antimatter. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak magnetic force. All of these numbers have to be just so. Folks, any messing with any of the numbers in that column that says value in our universe, if you touch any of those dials, there'd either be no universe or there'd be no life. Let me give you an example of just one of these forces. Let's imagine that this tape measure was enormously long. So long that it stretched from one side of the universe over here all the way over to the other side of the universe over here. Now, if it did, it would genuinely, truly represent the possible range of values or force strengths that gravity could have had in the universe. 
Over here, we have the weakest possible gravitational force. Over here, we have the strongest possible gravitational force. Now, let's imagine that the strength of gravity is actually set um, here. Okay? Now, let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity on Earth. Not by much, just two and a half centimeters from here to here. Okay? Scientists have discovered that this tiny increase from here to here on this vast scale, that this increase from here to here would actually have increased the strength of gravity on Earth a billion-fold. This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that there would never have been any life on Earth. This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. That's gravity. That's how finely tuned gravity is. But all of the numbers on the screen have to be just so. Scientists have studied two of the 20, and they found that these two are fine-tuned to each other to a precision of one part in 10 to the power 40. Now, what does a one in 10 to the power 40 chance look like? Well, conveniently for us, fortunately for us, Canadian astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross has a famous illustration of the 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. I think you'll enjoy this one. Hugh Ross says, take a continent the size of North America and cover that continent with small coins. And then pile your coins up so high that they reach 236,000 miles into the sky. That, incidentally, is the distance from here to the moon. He says, then take an additional one billion other continents, also the size of North America, and again, cover your continent with your small coins, and again, pile them up 236,000 miles into the sky. Okay? Next, he says, take an additional one coin. This time, paint your one coin red, and then hide your one red coin somewhere in one of the piles that are the size of North America of which you've got a billion, all of which are 236,000 miles reaching up into the sky. After you've hidden your red coin, you then find a member of the public and you ask them whether they would like to participate in a scientific experiment. <laughs> if they say yes, you blindfold this person and you say, pick a coin, any coin. The chance that that person will pick out the one red coin first time from one of the one billion piles the size of North America that reached 236,000 miles into the sky, that chance is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. That's what we need for two of our list to be perfectly fine-tuned to each other. But in order for you and I to be on the surface of this planet breathing and talking about it, all 20 have to be just so. Folks, I reached a point where I realized that in any other area of my life, I would never accept sheer luck or chance as the best explanation for the facts that are in front of us. Okay, thirdly then, the origin of organic life. Maybe I can begin this third point by just telling you about a funny thing that happened to me one time when I was driving my car late at night. So I'm driving along, and as I pull away from this roundabout, I can see in my rearview mirror flashing blue lights, I am being pulled over by the police. Now, folks, normally 
when this happens to me, I immediately feel guilty. I have to confess this has happened to me a number of times. Okay, yeah. so, but normally when this happens to me, I immediately feel guilty. Because you see, I already know what it is that I've done wrong. Yeah? But I've got to be honest with you and say on this particular occasion, I couldn't actually think of anything that I had done wrong. So I was feeling pretty confident as I wound down my window. And so the policeman comes over. He says, is this your vehicle, sir? I said, yes, as a matter of fact, it is. He says, were you aware that you were indicating for at least 200 yards before you eventually turned right at the previous junction? You know, and I'm thinking to myself, I hadn't realized that early indication was an offense. Anyway, so he says, step out of the vehicle, please, sir. I said, why? He said, when was the last time you had an alcoholic drink? I said, God, that's actually quite a good question. When was the last time? Um, I said, maybe two months ago. He said, blow into this bag, please, sir. I said, why are you getting me to do a breath test? He said, because your responses to my questions are a bit slow. <laughs> I said, look, I'm just a slow kind of guy. Anyway, I, I blow into this breathalyzer kit thing, and I hand it to him. He's looking at the result, and as he's looking at the result, I say to him, it's negative, isn't it? He says, uh, yes, sir. It is negative. It must be broken. <laughs> he said, have you been taking drugs, sir? I said, no. He said, cocaine, sir? I said, no. He said, ecstasy, sir? I said, no. And then eventually he let me go with a stern warning about the perils of early indication before junctures. <laughs> so anyway, I drive off and I go around my friend's house. Thing is, my friend introduces me to a marine biologist called Julia Brown. And she is now my wife, and we've got these four lovely children. There is something about life which is exciting. And if each and every one of us right now were to look at our unique DNA sequence, we would be blown away by the complexity of the information that is in each and every one of ourselves. Let's have a look. We're going to watch a video right now. Because the good news is that with the benefit of computer animation, we can enter now into the heart of a cell, and we can actually see this remarkable system that's happening inside your body on the screen. We can see it at work. After we've entered the heart of a cell, we can see here the tightly wound strands of DNA. These are the storehouses containing the instructions that are needed to build every single protein in an organism. And then, in a process known as transcription, a molecular machine, can you see it there, unwinding the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions that are needed in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then, another molecular machine copies these instructions to form a molecule known as messenger RNA. When transcription is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. This thing's like the gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell nucleus. It's very British. It actually knocks on the door. Let me out. And then we go out. It's all very civilized. Um, this messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory. This thing's called a ribosome. After attaching itself securely, the process of translation begins. 
You see, inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. These amino acids are transported from other parts of the cell. Can you see them arriving at the bottom of the screen? Then they're linked into these chains, and these chains are often hundreds of units long. And their sequential arrangement determines the type of protein that's being manufactured. So all of this is determined by your unique genetic DNA code that was embedded in that double helical structure that we saw at the very beginning of our video. When this chain is finished, it's moved from the ribosome to this barrel-shaped machine where it is going to be folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. Remember, this is exactly what's happening inside your body as you're watching it being animated, not on a microscopic scale, but on the big screen this morning. After the chain has been folded into a protein, what happens next is really clever. It's released and shepherded by another molecular machine that turns up out of left field, here it comes, and takes it, wow, how cool is that, to the exact place where it's needed. Now that is a cell today. But even the most primitive, even the most basic cell that scientists have ever been able to envisage or imagine, even that first cell still contains information, information in a code. So the code and the means of translating the code are both needed from the word go. One of those things is useless without the other, which begs the huge question, where did the information come from in the first ever living cell that ever reproduced itself? I've listed on the screen some of the newly discovered barriers. Suffice to say, we don't have a viable naturalistic explanation for how life started on Earth. Actually, right now, with each passing decade, especially since the 1990s, the problem of getting life out of non-life is increasing. Okay, we're out of time. We need to draw things to a close. Let's draw some of the threads together. Hey, nothing that I've said today proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, then when we look at the origin of the universe, and when we look at the fine-tuning of the universe, and when we look at the origin of biological information, in all three of these cases, what is needed, it seems, is a transcendent, intelligent first cause. Well, you could call a transcendent, intelligent first cause God. So it's clear that actually science hasn't buried God. God's existence is a reasonable explanation for the existence of the universe and for the existence of life. Okay, finally, what about Charles Darwin's famous theory of evolution? Well, evolution begins with all the universe already in existence. Evolution has nothing to say about how the universe started or even about how life began. So let's just be clear about how limited the scope of evolutionary theory is. Biological evolution does not even begin until... The universe has already been in existence for 10 billion years. How did the universe get here? Why did it begin to exist? Evolution doesn't address those questions. Evolution begins 
after you've already got the universe, and after you've already got planet Earth, and after you already have a single-celled organism on the surface of our planet living in the ideal conditions. So I think it's obvious that evolution could be true and God still exists. It would be a mistake to argue because evolution has happened, God doesn't exist. That is the mistake that Richard Dawkins makes. That is the category mistake that we started with. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. And as they do, let's look very briefly at three different Christian responses to evolution. Firstly then, young earth creationism. This is the view that says that the earth is young, that it's only 20 to 30,000 years old. This view says the earth was created in literally six 24-hour days. This view says that common descent, evolution between species, has not taken place. If you'd like to find out more about this view, you could look at answers in Genesis. An alternative second view is old earth creationism. This view, in contrast to the first, accepts the scientific consensus today, which says that the universe is 13.7 billion years old and that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. However, this view also says, along with the first view, that evolution between species, common descent, has not taken place. If you'd like to find out more about old earth creationism, you could look at reasons to believe or reasons.org. A third view is theistic evolution. This view differs from both of the first two views in that this view says that actually common descent evolution between species has taken place and that God has actually guided this process either to a greater or a lesser extent. If you'd like to find out more about this view, you could do so at BioLogos. Now, all three of these views are taken by sincere Christians who want to take the Bible seriously. Obviously, they do interpret the early chapters of the book of Genesis differently. In this church, you will probably find all three of these views represented and probably a few other views as well. Okay, you might say, what's the bottom line? Folks, the bottom line must be that some of the world's leading scientists are Bible-believing Christians. Therefore, no one is being asked to throw their brain out of the window. None of us this morning are being asked to commit intellectual suicide. Evolution used to be the big question. It's no longer the big question because of all the evidence we found in the last 20 to 30 years for the fine-tuning of the universe. The big question now is, why is there a universe with life in it? Why do we have a finely tuned universe? Every other circumstance rules out life. Every other scenario rules out life. Why do we have a fine-tuned universe? Life is the least likely thing we would expect to find, yet we have a universe that seems to have been set up so that advanced organic life could happen on the surface of our planet. Why would that be? That's now the big question. Lastly, we might wonder, hello, if God has gone to all this trouble to create the universe and then gone to all this trouble to create life, we would almost expect this God to communicate to his creatures in some way at some time. What the Bible is saying is that that is exactly what was happening through Jesus of Nazareth. And for me personally, folks, finding out that there really is a loving God and coming into relationship with him through trusting this person, Jesus Christ, that has been the most thrilling discovery of my life. God bless you. It's been great being with you. Thank you very much.